Hey listener, a quick note before we begin. This episode was recorded in early 2020, before the COVID-19 pandemic had swept across the country. While this episode was recorded a while ago, the topics on today's show, including bringing broadband to more Americans, have never been more relevant and important. So I hope you enjoy the show, and thanks for listening. Welcome to More Than 7 Dirty Words, the official FCC podcast. I'm Evan Schwartztrupper. The FCC has many bureaus and divisions, and the roles they play often evolve along with the technologies they regulate. For example, the Wireline Competition Bureau. There was a time, in, uh, that seems like forever ago, when a long-distance call was still a separate line item on your phone bill. And getting landline telephone service to every home in America was the big priority in the halls of the FCC. Now, the top priority is closing the digital divide, including by incentivizing the deployment of fiber optic cables across the whole country, which are a bit more high tech than the copper wires of the networks of old. So what does the world of wireline look like in 2020? I'm joined by Chris Monteith, chief of the Wireline Competition Bureau. Chris, thanks so much for joining. Thank you, Evan. My pleasure. So how did you get to be wireline bureau chief? I understand you've had a few different positions at the FCC. I have, in fact, unlike some FCCers, I've moved around in the agency over the past 22 years. <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> um, but I'm going to get just a little bit philosophical um, on you for a moment. I honestly believe that much of what happens in life is a combination of good luck and being in the right place at the right time. With respect to good luck, I believe we have an opportunity to shape our luck. And my mantra on that score is work hard and be kind. Getting to your question. <laughs> <laughs> so I had an opportunity to work with Chairman Pai when he was Deputy General Counsel in our Office of General Counsel about a decade or so ago. And I've had an opportunity over the years to work with other members of his staff and advisors. And I happened to be in the Wireline Competition Bureau when he became chairman of the FCC in 2017. So I was extremely honored that he asked me to head up the bureau at that time. And it's been a, a great and fantastic ride working with him over the past three years. Well, I'm glad that he made that decision as well. Um, so at a high level, for those who don't uh, spend all their time following the structure of the FCC, Maybe they're watching TV or doing other fun activities. Um, what does the Wireline Competition Bureau do? So at a very high level, uh, we regulate wire-based services. Uh, we work to ensure that all Americans have access to robust, affordable broadband and voice services. The programs and policies that we oversee include the four programs under the Universal Service umbrella, the High Cost Program, the Rural Health Care Program, the E-Rate Program, and Lifeline. And those all respectively deal with, for high cost, we're talking about places where it just costs a lot of money to deploy a service. For E-Rate, we're talking about schools and libraries. Schools and libraries. For healthcare, it's hospitals, clinics. Healthcare providers providing subsidies to enable them to provide services like telemedicine, remote access to health records, those kinds of things. And then the last one, Lifeline, we're talking about phone service. We're phone service for low-income consumers. Gotcha. All, again, sort of 
under the overarching principle of access to affordable telecommunication services for all. Right. Um, we also work to protect consumers and foster competition. So we work on infrastructure, barriers to deployment, those types of issues. Um, we review communications industry transactions and mergers to ensure that they're in the public interest. Um, we do numbering related issues, and we'll talk about those a little bit, such as our recent uh, rulemaking uh, proceeding that deals with establishing a three-digit code for national suicide prevention. Um, and finally, we oversee three important federal advisory committees, the Broadband Deployment Advisory Committee, the North American Numbering Council, and the more recent Precision, Precision Agriculture Task Force. Well, you just uh, accomplished a task I didn't think was possible, which was to summarize the Wireline Competition Bureau in less than a couple minutes. So um, <laughs> congratulations on that. So one thing that's interesting about the Wireline Bureau is just how you know, how much you spend time on certain topics seems to evolve over time, right? I bet there was a time when long distance calling was like the big thing that everyone was working on all the time. And now you're still dealing with that, but you're also dealing with gigabit fiber networks and electric utilities getting into the broadband business, a new entity that you're now interacting with that maybe in the past you wouldn't deal with. That would be a different regulatory agency. And changes in how we deal with phone service. You know, now it's basically a given that a long distance call is no different than a regular call as it, as it relates to the consumer's bill. So how have you seen those changes over time and how has that affected the Bureau and what it does on a day-to-day -day basis? Our work has changed dramatically over time. And as you mentioned, we have to evolve with the evolving technologies. We're, we're still working within the confines of the Communications Act, the authority um, given to us by Congress, but some of that evolves over time. Most of us have really witnessed, as you were alluding to, just these amazing changes in technology and communication services in just a few short decades. I am guessing that I'm slightly older than you are, Evan. Maybe a year or two. <laughs> a year or two. So we've gone from, as you were talking about, traditional landline service to cell phones that were the size of bricks and dumb to our smartphones. We've gone from dial-up internet to high-speed broadband um, with you know speeds and usages that are ever-increasing. Right. Um, we've worked very hard in the Bureau to keep pace with evolving technology and to make sure that what we do is fostering innovation and investment in technology to meet consumers' demand and to meet the realities in the marketplace. So speaking of incentivizing investment, the chairman's top priority, the FCC's top priority, is closing this digital divide. And when we say the digital divide, what we mean is the percentage of Americans that today still lacks access to high-speed broadband, as defined by the FCC. Now, one way the FCC helps to close the digital divide is by making it cheaper to deploy infrastructure. And part of that is updating regulations that might be adding costs to the system that are unnecessary to get the service out there. And the Wireline Bureau does a lot of this work. And um, I was hoping to touch on a couple policies that are already having an impact out there in the field. Um, one is called One Touch Make Ready. Um, as far as telecom slogans go, that's pretty catchy. 
but it also doesn't mean anything unless you work in this field. So what are we making ready? What are we touching? And why is this important to consumers? One of the first things I did as a new telecom attorney was work on pole attachments issues. That's like this a, was that's a buzzword in telecom, pole attachments. Pole attachments. <laughs> yeah. um, and it made me at that time stop and look at poles to see what's on the pole. I really, as a sort of your average consumer, had not paid attention to that. And that um, never goes away. And I, that never goes away. When I drive around now, I look at cell towers, and I'm like, is this the rest of my life now? I'm just never going to stop doing this. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, when I learned about the electric space on the pole, then the telecom space on the pole, um, it almost made me want to decide not to be a telecom <laughs> lawyer. But I got over that, and I realized really the importance of poles and the attachment that attachments that go on those poles. And the process of attaching can be a very time-consuming and expensive process. And you're talking, you know, depending on the area in which an entity is deploying, maybe thousands of poles. Right. So the concept of one-touch make-ready is fundamentally shifting the framework for pole attachments and allowing the new entity that is going to attach to the pole to control that process versus under the old regime where each entity that had an attachment on the pole had um, an ability to really slow the process down. Right, and the incentive there is that if you're already there, what incentive do you have to let someone else come in, right? Exactly. It, yeah, I would like to, uh, you know, attach something to your house. You're going to say no, right? So uh, why would you say yes, right? And, and of course, shifting that to the new entrant who has the incentive to deploy could be powerful. It's very powerful. And as we know, sort of, and not just in this field, but speed to market is important. Um, it can be the make or break in whether you're successful. And I think that concept comes into play here. And so the commission really, and working with our, I spoke of our federal advisory committee, the Broadband Deployment Advisory Committee, we uh, undertook a rulemaking proceeding to adopt a one-touch make-ready regime and thereby sort of remove some of those barriers to entry, allow entities to attach to poles in a much more streamlined fashion. Now the process can work, you know, in in some cases, in 25 days As versus to, months, yeah. months, years, potentially. Yeah, and because in the past, you'd, it, it, it might not just be one entity that's already on a poll. It could be several, and you'd have to get permission, basically, from each of them in a separate manner, and they'd each move at a different time. Now, exactly. you're coming in. I'm just going to move all three of you. I'm not going to – if I break something, I've got to pay you for that. But uh, I'm just going to do it all at once. And now this has been in effect for a little bit now. Um, it was, what, 2018? Yes, I believe so. So what sorts of results are we seeing out in the field? Um, it's still early in the process. We still are monitoring to see how effective it is. But we're, we're encouraged that this will, in fact, be a very um, you know, much improved process by which to get deployment out there. Yeah, I mean, going from potentially months and years to weeks is a big deal. Now, another thing that the FCC has been prioritizing is incentivizing 
new networks being deployed, right? There are these legacy copper networks all over the country, and they have played their role throughout history. You know, when you're picking up your phone and dialing a number on a landline in decades past, that was probably going over copper. But now we're seeing a lot of our phone calls, even on a landline, are going over the internet. And it's these new networks, these IP-based networks. And um, you know, the term that we use in, in, in this world of telecom is the IP transition. And this is, correct me if I'm wrong, we're trying to get to a place where companies are maybe retiring their legacy copper network in favor of building a new network that carries broadband, voice, business services, all in one stuff that is of a much higher quality and much faster. Now, the FCC is not going around saying, you have to do that. You have to get rid of that old thing and build this new thing. But what are we doing to try to incentivize a provider to move to the new technology? Well, I, I think the point that you made, Evan, is really important. And, and it, um, in some ways, uh, distinguishes um, the FCC and how we go about you know, regulating, I use quotation marks around that, the industry. And oftentimes what we are trying to do is create a regulatory regime that removes those barriers, removes outdated regulations, at, and fosters innovation investment. And again, sort of split, speed to market types of, of regimes. And here again, as a policy, our tech transition, we're not mandating anything, but we're trying to remove the underbush, so to speak, to, to make it easier for companies to move from copper to fiber. And we have, under the Communications Act, our Section 214, network change, um, and discontinuance rules. And they're, like in the, the sort of one-touch, make-ready regime, we've tried to speed that process and make it as efficient as possible. So compress the timelines, look carefully at the notice provisions under those rules, while still keeping in mind that we need to protect consumers. We need to make sure that there are replacements out there if a consumer um, you know, does not want to make that to, to make that move. So we have in place those kinds of protections for consumers. So, right. It's not just as simple as flipping a switch. If you want to move to the new network, there's notice involved. There's there's rules about how quickly you can do it and what communication has to happen with your community and the FCC. And what we've done here is just tighten that up, make it quicker, make it simpler. Exactly. Now, there are some parts of the country or no matter what you do on the regulatory side, you do the one touch make ready, you do the the incentivizing of the IP transition, you simplify pole attachments. Despite all that, it's just too expensive to deploy for the private sector business case to make sense. And that's where the Universal Service Fund comes in. Some of these programs you mentioned earlier, um, I did a whole episode with your colleague uh, Chelsea on the Connect America Fund. Uh, but more broadly, what role does universal service play in closing the digital divide? As you said, universal service really kicks in when removing regulatory barriers and other market incentives are not sufficient to see deployment. It plays a vital role in closing the digital divide. And as we've talked, that's the commission's number one priority. And when you think about the digital divide in very personal terms, like you and I have access to high-speed 
broadband. You and I have access to, you know, the full range of communication services. We're in an urban, major metropolitan urban area. We take it for granted in some yeah. in some ways. But you get out there to places where they don't have it and it's make or break. It's jobs, it's education, it you know, digital learning and how kids learn. Healthcare. It's it's healthcare. It's so important. And the commission over the past three years I think has just been really focused on this issue and really making important progress to, like in decades or eras ago, you know, build our interstate system or our road system or rural electrification. It's that kind of an effort that we're undertaking here. So with 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 the high cost program, that's really all about those high cost or extremely high cost areas. Um, we've just created, and in fact, the commission will vote in a few short days on the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund. It's a $20.4 billion fund that's looking in two phases to get high-speed internet access to unserved areas, rural areas. In the first phase, we're really looking at areas that we know are wholly unserved. There's no one there. No one's offering service. Um, you know, below 25.3, which is what we consider to be high-speed internet broadband at this point in time. Right. Um, and so we're looking at a reverse auction, which we have found through our past experience to be very effective in driving down the price at which we can get high-speed internet to those areas. Yeah, you have providers competing for the funds. That's exactly right. And we're looking at a combination of performance tiers, latency, to get the best possible future-proof internet access services in these rural areas. And one of the things that has been good about the reverse auctions is this competition between different technologies, um, you know, different companies, trying to get the best bang for the buck while making sure that the service is good and that rural Americans don't get a second-class service. Um, if you don't live in a rural area, you might not interact with some of these companies that are kind of involved in these auctions, right? If you're only familiar with maybe a cable company or a phone company, you might not have heard of an electric utility mm -hmm. providing broadband or a fixed wireless provider uh, doing broadband in a rural area. So um, how has that you know, tech-neutral approach you know, paid dividends in terms of auctions in the past, and, and do we hope that that will similarly drive results in, in the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund. Yes, and, and in the past we've had, um, you know, as you said, a technology neutral approach while still looking and evaluating how we best weigh the options, um, those bidders in the auction to ensure the, the best quality broadband services for the, for the dollar, for the price. In the CAF Phase 2 auction, we found that the rural electric co-ops who already serve their communities with electric services, who already have customer relationships, um, came in and bid in that auction and were very successful in, um, in winning in certain areas of the country. That kind of competition, you know, is good for everyone helps drive down prices, helps get those really hard to serve areas where the business case just may not exist. 
I heard Chairman Pai one time in an open meeting when he was uh, introducing a wireline bureau staffer who was giving a presentation. He said, there are those who wireline and those who don't. Or, or maybe I'm paraphrasing. But that stuck with me because as I've worked here, I've noticed that while there are tough technical issues across all of the bureaus, and I don't mean to suggest that there are not, it seems that the ones that kind of get so far in the weeds that you're almost ready to quit or change career paths, as you <laughs> suggested earlier, seem to be disproportionately concentrated <laughs> in your bureau. So I wanted to ask you, what is like the strangest, most difficult topic that comes across your desk that even the best lawyers can struggle with? I would have to say unis. And that is a unbundled network element? Unis are unbundled Did network. I Wikipedia that <laughs> 20 minutes before this episode? Maybe I did. <laughs> and um, the concept of a uni is a good concept um, coming out of the 96 Act, where the 96 Act was about spurring competition in local markets. For phone service. For phone service, for right. voice telephony services. Yeah. Um, and the incumbent Lex at that time, having about 99% of the market, how do um, we set up a regime that will enable competitors to come in? And right. So the concept was to allow access to certain unbundled network elements. Um, so that a CLEC, a competitor, could come in and, you know, lease, so to speak, that element to help it put its own service together. Right. So you had the big incumbent company selling access to its network on a wholesale basis, basically, to then companies that might compete for individual customers. Exactly. This is a very complicated, <laughs> arcane area of law. And I will tell you that I am extremely grateful that I have very smart lawyers <laughs> in the Bureau that work on the uni um, proceedings, of which we've had several of right. late. And, and, and now at this time, looking at whether or not unis are still necessary. Is there enough competition? Is there, um, you know, robust competition in the area sufficient that we no longer need to impose that requirement on an incumbent lack? Yeah, given that the copper wire is no longer the only means to which, or through which to make a phone call. We all do phone calls on our cell phones. People are going, you know, totally cordless. Uh, only having a cell phone. There's Skype. There's Google Voice. If you have an internet connection, there are just endless ways to potentially make a phone call. So that's why the FCC is looking at this regime and saying, oh, given that, does it still make sense to regulate the old network in that way? And looking at the number of competitors in the market, in, right. the, in, the cert in a certain market, and again, just sort of saying, well, there's there's competition here already. And, and therefore, um, do we need to provide access to unis? Should we be embracing regimes that spur facilities-based competition versus, right. you know, a resale? Right, type more, more infrastructure deployment. Yeah. 
So I'm going to note that, and every time I have a wireline <laughs> person on the podcast, I'm going to ask if they agree with you that it's unis. Maybe someone will say it's tariffing. Maybe someone will say it's pricing. Maybe someone will say it's numbering. And I'll uh, make sure to ask folks in the building to kind of get an informal poll on what the most arcane uh, wireline issue is. Now, um, obviously, tons of hip, cool young people listening to this podcast. That's why I do it. Um, and uh, some of them might be very interested uh, in pursuing a career path similar to yours. Maybe they want to be bureau chief. Maybe they want to be chairman or chairwoman. And uh, what advice would you have for those young lawyers that are interested in this area of you know, the economy? So I would say um, if they're still in law school and thinking about communications, take a communications law course um, and definitely I think most law students do do, take your Administrative Procedures Act course, because it's very important. That's what we do. Right, and yeah. we're very bound by the APA. Right. Um, join the FCBA, the Federal Communications Bar Association. It's a great way to network, to take advantage of continuing legal education opportunities, lots of brown bag series, et cetera. Um, I'd also say at some point in your career, and we could debate whether that's right after you get out of law school or like others, me, for example, um, you know, practice, whether at a law firm or in-house or association, but at some point do a stint at the FCC. Um, there's no substitute, in my opinion, for actually knowing how the place works. And you cannot learn that from afar, <laughs> in my humble opinion. Yeah, now, I, I would agree with that. <laughs> And I, I, re, I recall when I was on the outside at a private law firm, you know, thinking, oh, my goodness, why does it take the FCC so long to do everything? <laughs> when you're on the inside, you have a different view of that. And we work really hard and we work very hard to get it right for American consumers. And that's very important. Um, there's too much at stake with respect to technology. Right. Um, now, the risk from doing a stint at the FCC is that um, you may just grow to love the place. Yeah, what happened? <laughs> I know, seriously. <laughs> you know, the people are fantastic. They are really dedicated public servants. The policy work is really fun. So you may find yourself like me 23 years later going, hmm, thought I was just going to do my two-year stint at the FCC. Yeah. And obviously, you know, based on my conversation with you, I would give important advice to all those who are thinking of joining the FCC, just specialize in unis. <laughs> it's number one. Chris needs your help. <laughs> Maybe you're thinking about AI or virtual reality or something sexy like that. No, it's all about unis. <laughs> exactly. Take, take that to the bank. Um, well, we'll leave it there. My guest has been Chris Monteith, Chief of the Wireline Competition Bureau. Chris, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Evan. Appreciate it. Find this podcast in the iTunes Store, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a review because it will help others find the show. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.